Hi, and welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chandler. This episode of Clinically Thinking is particularly relevant to the current Australian context in which our government has used the final report of the Medicare Better Access Initiative to discontinue the additional 10 psychology sessions made available during the height of COVID. Today, I speak with Dr. Aaron Frost, a self-confessed data nerd, about the data underpinning this report and what it means about the delivery of psychological services in Australia. The son of a psychiatric nurse and grandson of a psychiatric nurse educator, Aaron grew up near Woolston Park Psychiatric Hospital in Ipswich, Queensland. Mental health reform was a regular topic at the dinner table. And even before becoming a psychologist, Aaron had a sense that this was a profession in constant flux, driven as much by passion and fashion as by hard data. From early in his career, Aaron was drawn to empiricism and has brought the tools of psychological science to all aspects of his practice. In his first appointment as a drug and alcohol counsellor, he would stay back after work to collate and analyse archival client data. And this search for real-world outcomes at both a patient and policy level has come to define his career. Aaron has had a diverse range of research collaborations, from immunological links between cancer and schizophrenia to managing aggression in acute psychiatric settings. For a clinician, Aaron is well-published with over 1,500 citations, most notably for his work on callous and unemotional traits in children with Professor Mark Dads and his work on schizophrenia with Professor Stan Katz. Since 2006, Aaron has been collecting session-by-session routine outcome data and benchmarking his effectiveness against international standards. This led to the development of benchmark psychology, an entirely data-driven private practice that has now collected complete data on over 5,000 treated clients. He is considered a thought leader in national policy around outcomes. Aaron has been an active contributor to the APS, both as Queensland Clinical College Chair, and most recently, on the board of directors, where he has brought his outcome focus to decision-making and policy. Since completing his board tenure, Aaron has renewed his focus on analysing and publishing the data collected at Benchmark Psychology to understand how to improve outcomes in private practice. He is also focused on rolling out his registrar program for clinical psychology registrars, aptly named PrEP. Thanks, Dr. Frost. Thanks, Aaron, for joining us today. I don't think I've ever called you Dr. Frost before. Does anybody call you that? No, no, no one calls me that. Despite me asking my wife, she's she's not coming to that party. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad she's listening. Uh, I wonder whether you could just tell us a little bit of background. I think our listeners will be interested to hear a little bit about your own background. I don't think there are too many psychologists, for example, who are the, who have such an interest in data and the way you do. And how did you? How did you get to be so interested in data in a way that you are? Yeah, look, um, I, I guess I, I've had a bit of a weird career arc. I, I think I, I started as a, as a clinical psychologist and, you know, went off and did my placements and worked in kind of health psych placements and, you know, cancer and rheumatology and um, also, you know, my PhD work with children with behavioural problems and adult mental health and oh, yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I, I guess I took a real sideways step and took a, my first real job in psychology was as the senior research and evaluation um, 
psychologist at one of the major tertiary teaching hospitals, uh, the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Shout out to all of my Queensland Health uh, friends out there. And, and I was just fortunate enough to work with a group of colleagues, both psychiatrists and psychologists, who had a deep interest in policy, a deep mm-hmm. interest in data and benchmarking um, for, for tackling real-world problems. So when, when I did my PhD, very much research was around, you know, randomised control trials and epidemiology, like that real high-level science. Yeah. Um, and, and I found it a bit surprising going into health where it was much more, you know, what's the mean, what's the standard deviation? Um, but that's the kind of research that in some ways um, really defined the early parts of my career, but also is readily translatable into actual policy action. So I spent about six or seven years doing that before jumping back into a full-time clinical career. So I've kind of always straddled both of those camps. Okay, very interesting. Let's talk about this recent decision and the rep- the report and the data because I really want to mm. focus on the data today. Yeah, of course. Um, and, the, and the data which has been used to make the decision that the government has recently made. Can you assume that lots of psychologists, lots of listeners aren't really, if they haven't read the report like you. Yeah, have, sure. You know, and I certainly haven't. And I, so we, I think I'd be really glad, and I'm sure our listeners would be really glad, if you could talk us through the key findings and uh, the, the decision points that which the government has, you know, used to make their decisions. That would be very helpful, I reckon. Yeah, look, that, that's that's really helpful. And and I think it's I think it's important to really separate the data from the decision because actually mm-hmm. the two of them, um, at, at least on the face of it, don't seem massively related. Um, the report itself, we as psychologists should have a medal pinned on our chest. Like yeah. it just says such amazing things about the work that we've been doing for the last 10 years. Um, but more specifically, the work that we've done for for the last two to three years during the pandemic. Can you tell us so, a little bit about that? I think we could just spend a few minutes <laughs> noticing yeah, look, some of the good stuff we've been up to. So, so the the big one for me, and and this this one, uh, this is gonna this is gonna make me sound. Um, you might be surprised to hear me say this. That this bit of data actually brought a tear to my eye when I was sitting there looking at it. Wow. Uh, I, I was just looking at the amount of work that we did. And, you know, of course, there's trends over time. And every year we do about 4% more work than we did the year before, you know, because the workforce grows and we're capable of doing a little bit more work. And then in 2020, the first year of pandemic, we we doubled that. We went from a 4% growth to a 9% growth. Can you explain and, that in sort of a, you know, in an average week of a psychologist, for example, what, what might that look like? Yeah, if if you used to see twenty people, now you saw twenty two. If you used mm-hmm. to see thirty people, now you saw thirty three. Yeah, great. And of course, not everyone did that because some people got COVID, some people got trapped in lockdown. Yeah. So the the last man and woman standing really kind of shouldered a, a huge workload because on average we went up by nine percent. So we doubled the normal rate of growth. And there was no there was no government incentive, there was no work harder for COVID bonus, there there was no reason to do that other than the fact that we saw that our clients were struggling, it was a time of crisis, our wait list blew out, and we all stepped up without being asked. And then the year after, in 2021, we did better than that. We not only maintained those gains, we went from 4% to 9%, and then another 10%. Wow. And that's that's 10% on top of the 9% that we'd already grown. So I, I really look at that as a bit of a wartime 
effort from us, our, my colleagues, my friends. And I, I certainly saw that. And I don't know about you, but I feel exhausted at Absolutely. the end of 2022. And there's it's a, a reason. Yeah, there's a reason we feel like that. We've all yeah. been working really, really hard. There's a lot of very, um, very tired psychologists who, as you said, were already working hard before the pandemic. Absolutely. No, then... no, no, no one was sitting around flicking rubber bands at the wall waiting for, you know, work to do. <laughs> Not anybody um, I know, that's for sure. No. Um, and it speaks to, sorry, it sort of speaks to the heart, I think, of psychologists that they really are, they're, you know, a caring and helping profession that we yeah, want ab- to help people recover and, and get well and ab- go back into their lives. Absolutely. And, and I mean, I, I guess I, I saw that in, in my team, but seeing it there in black and white numbers and, and they're, they're Medicare numbers, like that is actual Medicare claims. There's no, okay. there's no dispute about those numbers. That comes from the Medicare data set compiled by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. Those numbers are real. We stepped up and we stepped up massively in a time of crisis. And I think we need to be really proud of that. So, so to me, the context of that and then getting that decision, um, it, it just... It's, it's a very unusual timing to link the two. I say, yes. Um, but yeah, there, there's some great stories in that data. All right. So great. That's fantastic. Aaron, can you tell me some more about what the data shows us? Yeah, look, um, the, the next thing for me is um, given that we were working so hard, I guess the big question is, did, did the quality slip? Did we, you know, slip into just really sloppy kind of work? And there's no evidence to support that. I actually had a look at the retention rate data. So again, this is real Medicare data. This is not disputable. This is black and white fact. Um, you know, someone swiped their Medicare card, that became part of the data set. This yeah. data is real. Um, they actually got better. So typically our retention rates were that pre-pandemic, people had an average of 4.5 sessions. Uh, during the pandemic, that went up to 5.4. Can we just talk a bit about that? Before you, yeah. I know you've got some, I've got some questions around that because I hear yeah, the yeah. number, I've heard lower numbers. For example, I've heard oh, on average people will see like 1.7 times. Yeah. I don't know about your practice, but not in our practice. That, no. That, yeah, this is this number makes no sense to me. Um, So the four point, four point number, that doesn't doesn't equate to, to what's going on in our practice. Yeah, look, there's a there's a real um, issue, and and this is this is not Australian psychology. This is psychotherapy on the whole, and psychotherapy on the whole has a dropout rate that sits at about thirty percent. Okay. And dropout rate is always defined. Typically, uh, most of the international benchmarks are defined as a dropout after the first session mm-hmm. or the second session. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you you and I have both got that person that we've seen twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, one hundred and fifty times. But also, we've got 30% of people who come in once or twice. Got it. Um, so if, if you really look at the distribution, what you typically see is kind of a bimodal distribution. You see a bunch of people who are our short therapy clients who yeah. stick around for, you know, a handful of sessions. And then we've got our, our longer term clients. And it's difficult to establish what the mean is for that because, you know, you'd, you'd actually have to look at the distribution. But, yeah, mm-hmm. I suspect that that mean is much closer to nine, 10, um, maybe even 15 sessions. Right. But yeah, the, the, the 4.5, that's a real number. But yeah, as, as we remember from undergraduate statistics, you can only really use a mean when you've got a normal distribution. And we don't have a normal distribution. We've got a massively negatively skewed distribution with a very long tail out towards the 90, 250 sessions. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. 
So in the context of the pandemic, there was this shift in the number of sessions that our clients were attending for. Is that right? Yeah. So it, we, we increased it by, by almost one, which again, that's retention rates are not a perfect quality indicator. But certainly if we were phoning it in and we weren't doing great therapy and we were just churning, retention rates is the kind of place where you would see that that quality would fall apart. And it didn't. It actually got better. Now, some of the reason that it got better is obviously the extra 10 sessions. But it's only a very small number of people who actually used those extra 10 sessions. So I don't don't think that accounts for all of it. I, I certainly think what that data says is that the quality of service that was delivered during this kind of peak wartime effort um, didn't deteriorate. And again, I think we need to be proud of that. Okay, excellent. All right. So we're not uh, delivering sloppy services because people are hanging around for longer. So what else is the data telling us about? Look, and and that's, and and this is where um, it's important to recognize that the study, the evaluation, it's actually nine different studies. Um, so, so study one is what I've just talked about largely there. And that's the Medicare data. That is indisputable. That's if you have a Medicare card, you're part of that data set. Um, study two, which is, this is the one that I, I guess I'm, I'm most interested in, uh, because it, our, our data from benchmark, um, is, is included in that. I think we contributed about 5,000 complete data sets mm-hmm. to, to that study. Kay Frankham included her data. Uh, Chris Mackey, um, mm-hmm. who you know, I think many of your listeners, yeah, yeah. M- many of your listeners would be familiar with both Chris and Kay. Absolutely, and of hope co- so. Yeah, and and of course um, Ben Ben Buchanan from NovoCycle so contributed the NovoCyc. And so, when you say complete data set, what does that mean? Yeah, so for us, that means we collect data on every client, every session. So you come in you get given an iPad, we give you one of our outcome measures. Uh, we use the DAS 10. I know Chris uses a different data set. Kay used a different data set. Obviously, uh, NovoPsych has a range of different measures, although uh, Ben did incorporate the DAS 10. So thanks thanks for that, Ben, if you're listening. <laughs> um, I'll make sure he hears it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so what what we do is that we, we use that data every session to kind of think about therapy as almost like a scientific experiment. So if, if, my, if my hypothesis, which I guess we would call a formulation, is that you have some cognitive distortions and that if you changed your cognitive distortions, you'd be less depressed, to me, that's a testable hypothesis. If you go off and do some cognitive work and your symptoms don't change, then that suggests that my hypothesis was wrong. Um, so we, we really do, we, we certainly, we're not slaves to the data, but we always look at the data to try and figure out, you know, if you've had 10 sessions of cognitive therapy and you haven't gotten better, it's unlikely that session 11 to 20 is going to make much of a difference. And maybe it's time to, whether we consider EMDR or ACT or schema therapy or or some other alternative. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for me, a complete data set means we've got session one through to session N. Got it. Um, what, whatever the, the outcome. Now, obviously, and, and no criticism of the NovoPsych data, but obviously their, their data is a little bit more patchy because, pe- you know, people when they're using NovoPsych don't necessarily do it every session. So it's important that the Novo data matched with the benchmark data, matched with the Frankham data, matched with the Mackey data. So there's actually 83,000 um, individual clients included in study two. 
So study two, it's a pretty big study, but it doesn't tell us about the whole of psychology in Australia. It kind of tells you about the outcomes in the places that are doing that that outcome informed, or at least uh, if you're part of the NovoPsych data set, at least you're you're using outcomes in an informed way. So, so study two is the one that, for me, I'm probably most excited about. So, as you say, there, um, it's already the people who are using, you know, outcome measures routinely. Yeah. Yep. You know, who already think in a, that kind of a even slightly data-driven way. Uh, who in that group? And maybe, do you think that's? Do you think you guys are a representative? I don't know what's going out there in clinical land. Well, it's it's a it's a um, it's an open hypothesis, isn't it? Like one, <laughs> one is that one is that we are a reflection of what's happening everywhere else, and it's just that we happen to have the measures. Or two is that we are a radical example of the Hawthorne effect in play, um, and that by by looking at something, you you know by nature um, change it. And I think that's a that's a that's an open open question. Yeah. I well, you go on my. Yeah, my, my hunch, and of course, you know, I, I invest in this because I think it matters. I think it does matter. I think you do get better outcomes. Uh, having said that, we've got a national report that is based upon that data, um, and, and I hope that it, you know, puts a very strong foot forward for psychology from an empirical point of view. Hmm. I, I, just one more thing on that before I ask you some more questions around that. Yeah, go for um, it. But um, just, you know... Uh, the, the one six and ten mark, I guess we've all got. You'd like to think we'd all have data around even just yep. the DAS uh, as a general outcome measure at the you know assessment, first session kind of point, and then if you see somebody at the six sessions of that ten section session session mark, and you're writing to a GP, then you can easily include that yeah. that data, if nothing else. And I'd like to think that we would use more disorder specific outcome measures um, you know for me- and yeah absolutely gains but it's a very basic measure the one that gps the, get the, the the tricky thing and and there's a lot to unpack there the um absolutely using routine outcome measurement doesn't replace using symptom specific stuff it's 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 a minimum data set it doesn't it doesn't replace what other measures you would use on the pre-post thing um with one of my other hats on, I often get asked by NGOs and government organisations and private practice to come and evaluate their data for them. Um, and I'm like, great, can I, you know, can we have a look at the data? And they're like, yeah, we've got all of this pre-post data. And it's almost become a, a running joke that I reply by saying, you don't have pre-post data, you've got pre-data. Um, because typically when the data gets sent through, I find, you know, 10,000 cases, 100,000 cases where they've got session one data and then like, you know, 15 cases where they've got session two. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit, but not much. Like <laughs> okay. with, without, without putting strong clinical governance processes in place, um, people don't do those follow-up measures. And of course, you know, we know that a third to half of people are going to be gone by the time they roll around okay, to session six anyway. People don't, yeah, yeah, people don't leave at session six or session 10. You know, they they very inconveniently leave at session five and session seven. Very rude, isn't it, really? But yeah, yeah. So point. okay, um, so yes, that's not as nice and neat and tidy as I might like to think it is, is it? No, it, it would be great if it was. Um, but again, when I say we we put our best foot forward in that data, we also put our worst foot forward because all of those zeros, all of those people who dropped out, they're included in the data. So you know, it's 
the data set that's included in this study too, in this big evaluation, it's, it's warts and all. This is including our dropouts. This is including the cases who got better, the cases who got worse and the cases who didn't. Okay. So... All right, so I'll try and stop interrupting you. Um, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> tell us some more about this um, this uh, study that you're involved with and what it what it tells us. Look, the the big one there, and again, I, I won't take credit for this. This this all belongs to Jane Perkis and and her colleagues who did this this evaluation. Uh, but their their study too. There, uh, the first thing is it just debunks a bunch of myths. Um, and that the first one is that the psychologists only treat mild to moderate cases. So according to the K10, and, you know, the K10 is not a perfect measure. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly not a huge fan of the K10, but at the end of the day, that's the measure used by the World Health Organization to assess psychological distress at a population level. According to the K10, 79.8, so let's call it 80, 80% of the people that we see in that study presented with either high or very high levels of distress. We are not seeing the worried well we are seeing people who are really unwell and who are highly psychologically distressed. And I think it's really important that every time one of those kind of public talking heads about mental health talks about the Better Access Program as a program for the worried well, that one of the psychologists who's listening here corrects them and says, sorry, 80% of the people that we see present with either high or very high levels of distress. I just think that's one of those myths that has been repeated often enough that people have come to accept that it's true and it's fundamentally incorrect. All right, good. So that's myth number one. The psychologists are seeing <laughs> people who are uh, just the worried. Well, and we all we you know, we all know that in prior practice that's not the case. But as you said, it's been that's the word that goes out there, isn't it? That, uh, that's yeah, all absolutely. And 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 I really want to separate data from narrative yes. because the the world of media and politics is the world of controlling the narrative. Um, I think it's really important that we let the data speak because the data is on our side here. Okay, good. So that one. What next? What are the, some of the other myths that you've uh, established? You've worked out oh, your this, reading of the study. This idea, and and again, I'm I'm hearing this one that the minister thankfully didn't didn't um, say say this one, but I've heard this a lot from mental health advocates over the course of the last couple of years that better access is just a revolving door and that no one is actually getting better. Yeah, tell us now, about that. Yeah, now, now if you look at our data, Kay's data, Chris's data, and the NovoSoc data, and again, we, we all use different measures, we all, you know, categorised it in different ways, but if you use the criteria of clinically significant change, somewhere between 50 and 60% of people made clinically significant improvement. Um, now, that, now that... What does that mean? Well, what that means is that that's an effect size that's comparable to the best randomized control trial anywhere in the world. Um, we, we might say, hey, that's 50 to 40, 40 to 50% of people right. who aren't getting better, right. but show, show me any randomized control trial looking at psychotherapy that does better than that. Okay. Um, that, that is world-class benchmark standards. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Now, we're seeing people who are unwell and the work we're doing is helping people get well and then we're discharging them. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. We don't actually hang on to them for longer than we need to. We're happy to move them on when they're finished and well and recovered and say somebody new. Yeah, absolutely. That, there's, a, that, there's, a, there's an interesting graph that the, the minister often points to. For, for those who are reading along, it's on page 91 of the, the report. 
and it shows that new users are flatlining. So there's not a growth in new users for, for better access. And, and I, I feel like that, that one's being misrepresented and misinterpreted to suggest that because there's not growth, that we're not seeing new people. Actually, we're seeing just over 800,000 new users every year. So what does that actually mean, that graph? That, that graph means that we're seeing 800,000 new people every year. It's just okay. that it's not increasing. Yeah. Ah, oh, I got it. Okay. So it's, it's, like, it's like we're speeding, but we're not accelerating. I see. So we're, we're, we're at a steady speed, but we're not accelerating. So, so that, that graph is mapping growth. Okay. That, uh, very frustrating. That's been misinterpreted then. Well, it, it, it seems to be. So I'm really struggling to see where that, that narrative is, is coming from, that, you know, we're, we're just seeing the same old people over and over again. Because, again, the, the clear data, and, again, that's, that's not my, my study or the, data, the study that I'm involved in with 80,000 people. That's the 30, 000, sorry, 30 million people who are in Medicare. That's, that's the real data. 800,000 new people every year rolling through better access. It's, it's pretty amazing when you think about it. I think it is amazing. Um, I, I have heard that narrative too that you spoke of and, and I don't know where it comes from either, um, but it's good to hear that that's actually not true. People are being seen, recovering and being discharged and then new people are taking their place to get the treatment they need and, and so on and so forth. That's the fact. Absolutely. That's what the data Absolutely. shows. Okay, good to know, good to know. Good for our listeners to hear that from you as well. Um, and then if if we think, if, if we keep looking at the data um, there for a second, I think that the next big one, and, and this, this was certainly, I think that this is the, this is the real risk for us because there is a truth to, to this point, but I think it's more complicated than, than what's being said. Um, and this is the idea that the extra 10 sessions all got sucked up by extra clients. And I think this is something that we Sorry, by by the same client, so we, yeah. we're just seeing the same. They just people. kept saying, they kept sort of hanging on rather than being discharged when they're well enough that they just thought I might as well just. Or the psychologist said, I just might keep keep seeing you because I've nothing else to do other than seeing the same client over and over again. Yeah, yeah, what's uh, exactly uh, going on? Yeah, look, absolutely, and and what what it indicates is that that there was a truth to that. So in in 2020, 14 percent of our workload was providing care. Uh, who who were in that extra ten? So fourteen percent of the total activity. So okay. uh, a little over a little over one in ten sessions. So if, again, if you're seeing thirty people a week, about three of those were for people who were um, in in that that extra cohort. Well, that's not um, many, is it? It's not. It's, no, it's, it and like it's not many to me in my mind. Fourteen. No. Well, and again, I, I was I was talking to I've, I've been talking to a couple of colleagues, and it's interesting if you look at the the long-term data, both internationally and from Australia, it looks like about 10% is the magic number. Like 10% of people are going to need more than 10 sessions. Um, so so four, 14 is a little bit high, but fascinatingly, in 2021, that number was down to 11. Um, so it, it really looks like we saw a bunch of people, they got better, um, and then our, our numbers went back down to, to more like the normal, where we're seeing more like one in 10. And, and yeah. any, sorry, any clues? A couple of questions. Any clues as to why there was that sort of uptake and then settling back of the numbers? I, my, 
and this is purely anecdotally, this is just looking okay. at, at my practice, um, I don't think it was COVID. Okay. I don't think, and, and maybe, and I'll, I'll preface that by saying I, I'm, I'm not in Melbourne. I wasn't locked down for six months. And, you know, we, we all experienced a lot of psychological distress during COVID. But to me, in my clients and the clients that I supervise and the, the people in our practice, they weren't the people uh, who were taking the extra 10 sessions. People were coming in because they were economically uh, distressed or they were anxious or they were depressed and socially isolated. But they were typically, they were presenting with adjustment disorders and having, yeah. you know, five, six, seven sessions. Mm -hmm. um, to me, they were the people who we had always been kind of holding on the edges, the people who were high risk that never managed to get a decent dose of therapy and used to get seen once a month, every month, except January and December. Mm -hmm. um, they mm -hmm. jumped on in and got proper treatment. Um, and I, I think the fact that, the fact that that workload is back to 11, I'd like to, and again, this is speaking beyond the data, but I guess the hypothesis that I would like to believe is true is that some of those people got proper treatment and are no longer requiring treatment. Good. And I'd like to come to that. But before I do, I just don't want to forget um, something you said that was a bit of truth to one of the statements in the, uh, the report has made that uh, there was some uptake of sessions perhaps some psychologists were seeing clients perhaps beyond what the, might have been needed is that is that right have i got that right no no i, I no I, I don't think so but uh, but i think it's it's undeniable that the extra 10 sessions did lead to us doing more work for people in session 10 11 12 like if we think if we take that 14 percent number if 14 percent of our workload was spent seeing old people that's 14% less capacity to see new people. And that, that is part of what drove okay. the waitlist problem that, that we had in 2020 wow. and 2021. Having said that, my, my view, and obviously I don't have the Medicare data for 2021 because that stuff takes a while to get cleaned up. I don't know what it's looking like in Melbourne now, but the waitlist problem for me, I don't know, what are you guys like in Adelaide? But our waitlist is back to normal. Uh, yes, I think ours is pretty much back to normal as well. Yeah. yeah. So, so to, to me, it feels like taking the 10 sessions away to solve the wait list problem feels like solving a problem that was an acute problem two years ago or maybe, maybe even a year ago. I don't know. It, 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 feels, it feels like the wrong solution to a problem that doesn't currently exist. But I, I'd be interested to hear, and I'm sure, I'm sure you'll get feedback from people saying, what does that guy know? Our wait lists are still 12, 18 months. And, and that, that might be true. But certainly when, when I ask around, you know, my friends in Brisbane, Sydney, Perth, um, most people's wait lists are coming back to usual, unless you've got a very specialised little niche. Uh, yeah, and there are those niches around, aren't they, that are autism assessments, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Several terms, I think, have huge wait lists. Um, no, but, but again, I guess my point would be that was a problem yeah. before the pandemic was, and that and that will continue to be a, a problem un, until we invest in training. Absolutely. So thinking about these 14% these of people who are seeing uh, psychologists for more, more sessions, um, these look like there was the people, the people who actually needed a a greater dose of psychotherapy than uh, perhaps they were getting before. Is is that, I mean, what are the explanations 
for this other explanations for this um, extra usage that might be related to actual better you know proper treatment for psychological disorders if if we look again if we look at the data in the report uh we go back to the mild moderate severe um question it's worth noting that we've got um, or we've demonstrated in in that report and i say we as psychologists that we're the most effective with the people who are most severe. So the, okay. the, idea, the idea that psychology should be restricted to treating the mild people, actually the research, um, this research tells us that that's where we're least effective. That's, that's not the people that we're getting the greatest gains with. The people that we help the most with are the people who are most severe. Um, and certainly, and I, I was really interested in the question that you've just asked. So I actually interrogated my data, um, and I say my data, the, the benchmark psychology data, which again, it's, it's about four or 5,000 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I'll preface this by saying I didn't spend ages cleaning the data. I didn't throw it into a high-tech logistic <laughs> regression. I just did some quick little slices and dices with the data. I think we and forgive you for this. Yeah, and, and certainly if, if I did that broad categorization of mild, moderate, severe, and then looked at the relationship between service utilization, it was the severe people who were having the greater number of sessions. Um, so, so for us, yeah. our, our severe people, I think the average was 9.5 or 9.6 sessions that they were having. Yeah. But obviously, you know, there's a standard deviation there and you add on a standard deviation and there's a long tail into the 10 to 20 sessions. Um, yes. I, like, I like thinking of it like that, that skew with that long tail. So it does seem that those who so clients are getting what they need with, with around 20 sessions per year, clients can get an adequate, or most clients, many clients can get an adequate dose of psychotherapy in an annual year. Is Yeah, look, too and, much, and again, it's... Too much to, the, you know, that's too strong? Well, yeah, and I, I think that's a reasonable statement. And, and you know, if we're, if we're going to talk utopian world here, like... The, the actual limit is the limit of workforce. It's not the limit of sessions. Mm. So actually, if we just said that everyone's allowed to have 100 sessions if they want to. Now, first off, there's not many people who attend psychotherapy recreationally. Like it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not something you do for fun. Um, so, so we don't see, it's not like people are going to chew up, you know, extra dental visits because they really enjoy it. Yes, um, people are going to attend the sessions that they need. And what we'll probably see is that the majority of people have their two, three, four sessions just like they do now, but that that long tail, that 10% of people or 5% of people or whatever it is, um, they they will take the sessions that they need. And maybe that's 11 sessions, maybe it's 21 sessions, maybe it's 45. It's an interesting way to think. It makes me think about, okay, one, if we did a, like we live in a utopia and we just say, okay, you can have as many sessions as you like, then what would that actually look like? Well, yeah. like we're not going to, it was like a Tim, you're going to eat all the Tim Tams you like, if ha, maybe put that as, for kids and you're, you're not going to eat four packets. You might eat three and then feel a bit sick and stop. Well, well, I think the, the, the big thing for me, the, and, and this is where I'm so interested in, in outcome data, I think the real risk um, for, for us is that we would, one of the conversations that is hardest to have as a psychologist mm. is I've been providing all of this therapy for you and it doesn't seem like you're getting better. Indeed. Maybe I'm not the right person. Mm-hmm. And I think all of us in the skeletons in our cupboard will admit that there are a few clients on our books 
that continue to be on our books because it's easier to book an appointment with them next week than it is to um, have that really difficult conversation. I don't think that represents the majority, mm. but I do think there is a percentage of clients who will continue to receive ineffective therapy. So I think there needs to be some gates along the way, and maybe that's GP review. Maybe someone needs to actually look and go, hey, is therapy actually benefiting you? Mm, would you mm. would you benefit from medication? Do you need the wraparound care? Do you need to go and see a social worker mm. um, or, or whatever the, the alternative is? I, I think that that's the risk if we went down that utopian path. Mm. It's not that people who would... Um, otherwise not bother having therapy would get therapy it's that people who are really unwell who are clinging to therapy as a bit of a lifeline would continue seeking therapy rather than seeking alternate forms of health but again i think that's the that's the minority and do you think that happens i'm not suggesting that this is an excuse but it kind of happens uh in all kinds of spheres i'm sure gps have some clients that attend often but for example for us um making that difficult decision in some cases as it might be hard to do and so we sometimes may not isn't that the way it's always going to be we can't really do much about that do the gates are the gates going to be if we put too many gates and is it going to shut out the people who actually need the help rather than okay we include a few who don't but what does it really matter if there's a few that really aren't getting any much better but most people are actually getting a lot better yeah and and absolutely so so the the, the numbers that I use, and I, I, I teach this stuff fairly regularly, both to my students and to, to uni people, but um, just, just some numbers to keep in mind. So therapy will be ineffective, like completely ineffective for around about 30 to 40% of people. So oh, that's vicious. They are hard, hard numbers there, Aaron. 30%. Yeah. Now, of those, so keep, keep 30 in your head for a second. Yeah. So 30% of people. So imagine you're going to see 100 people in a year, 30% of those, so 30 people are not going to get any better. Okay. Now, of, of those, the next number to remember, and again, this is based on international benchmarks, of that 30%, 20% of them left to their own devices will stick in therapy indefinitely. Okay, wow. so think, think through those numbers for a yep. second. Okay, good, I got it, I've got it. So we've got six people now, right? We've got six people um, and they're going to come back next year. So next year, you're not going to see 100 new people, you're going to see 94 new people. And of those, five of them are going to stick with you indefinitely. The year after that, mm-hmm. you're going to see 89 new people and you're going to pick another five up who are going to stick with you indefinitely. I see. You, you can see that at about the 10-year mark, you're starting to have an entire caseload of people that you're not very effective with. <laughs> okay, that's the problem, isn't it? Um, so so we, we do, because again, left, and, and, and I fully understand that. I mean, this, this is how snake oil works, right? Like if the doctors say to you, you can't be helped, you're, you're going to go off and you're going to look at the crystals and you're going to look at the homeopathy and you're going to look at all of these things. When people are desperate, they'll seek any form of help that's available for them. And what we know is that there, there is a percentage of clients who psychotherapy is not going to help mm. and there is a percentage of those clients who will not make the decision for themselves mm. that they need to end psychotherapy. But it's, but it's a small number. But both, both ethically for them and also in terms of burnout and self-care for us, we do need to have some systems in place where we just really have that frank discussion with our supervisor and say, you know what, John's been with me for a really long time. I'm out of tricks in my toolbox and I don't mm. feel, I, I do not have a good faith belief that this person's going to make any real change. 
So the gate we should we not be our own gatekeepers then in taking this to supervision and looking and in the directors of services clinical services looking at the data and having and then bringing that back to hey sure can we not be our own gatekeepers well it seems to me that this is a better way of gatekeeping than a, you know a, a very I don't know brutal or you know blunt instrument of just of deciding that everybody needs X number of sessions just as a gatekeeping. You know, yeah, absolutely. I, I was a big fan of, if, if we think back to the APS white paper on yeah. Medicare a few sessions ago, I, from memory, and it's been a couple of years now, what what I seem to remember that was recommended was 10 sessions plus 10 sessions plus 10 sessions plus 10 sessions, with each one of them having to go back to the GP for a proper evaluation and review as to whether the person gets the next 10. I, I don't have a problem with that. I, I like that level of just independent scrutiny and oversight. Yeah. And and again, for the GP to maybe go, hey, you've seen this person for 10 sessions for depression. Maybe I should check your thyroid and maybe I should have a look yes. at your iron levels and some of the things that I might not have done when I initially wrote the referral. So, yes, indeed. Um, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't mind the idea of those choice points, but I agree with you, arbitrarily limiting the entire pool of clients to 10 sessions because the majority need less than five mm. seems like you know that's you wouldn't do that to cancer patients you wouldn't do that to um any other group so we go back to the the, the data and the thoughts that about 14 percent is that right of, of people will need more than 10 need, yeah it's it's 10. really I, i've seen i've seen different data sets on this um but yet 10 seems to be a pretty nice round number where it all averages out about ten percent of people need more than those ten sessions. And these are the people. And when you say need, you mean have complex, sufficiently complex problems that they really need that additional dose of. Yeah, I'm. I'm, right? I'm really reluctant to say that it's always sufficiently complex. Yeah. So I, I remember. So so back in the day, and I'm going to sound like an old person when I say this, but remember in the early days of Medicare when we had six plus six with a yeah. potential of another six. I do. I remember a bunch of people there who were. It wasn't that they were, you know, complex and had schizophrenia and personality disorders and drug problems. It was that they were receiving an adequate dose of therapy and then, you know, session 10 rolled around and they found out that their husband had been cheating on them and their distress was elongated and they needed a few more sessions to to tide them over. Yeah. I, I, I actually don't think, and it's interesting, I got contacted by someone on LinkedIn a couple of days ago who feels more confident about predicting this, but my read of the data is that we're not good at predicting a priori what the adequate dose of therapy is that you need. Some people respond really quickly to not very many sessions and some people with not very high levels of acuity um, or, or distress, they, they just take a while to build a relationship and build trust. And but we know from the data that, you know, the guys' guidelines that everything except panic disorder needs more than six sessions or more than 10 yeah. sessions. So it seems reasonable to think that we might need more than, that we might need 12 sessions. If 14, so 12% or 14% of the, of the population need those additional well, sessions to have well, adequate dose for whatever reason, whether the husband's having an affair or whether they're... Yeah. To, 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 me it's, to me, it's just an equity issue. Like it, it just, it seems cruel that for, for one in 10 people who need more than 10 sessions, that those sessions are suddenly not, no longer reimbursable.
All right, and let's talk about equity for a minute now. Yeah. Uh, don't mind. I'm interested to talk about that because there, you know, there's some concerns that, and correct me if I've got this wrong, but that, that our, coll- our friends and family and, and so forth in the country areas, rural areas and so forth are missing out um, uh, on the service because of this phenomenon where psychologists are well, sort of a bit of a myth. I think you said that psychologists are continuing to see clients ad, ad infinitum with their 20 sessions. What are your what is your understanding of the data about that claim? This is complicated. Can I talk about a few different areas? Yeah, of... nice and slowly for me, please, if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, look, that's that's okay. Because um, I, I this this took a, a long time for me to really kind of wrap my head around. Um, I really want to separate out um, a few different types of inequity because there, there is absolutely inequity in the system. Okay. Um, and it's legitimate and we can't pretend that it's not there and we need to think about how we're going to solve it. Having said that, it's not a simple story. So so the first one, and this is a good news story, um, when we think about First Nations people, yes. and, and I apologise that the language that, that they used in the report was First Nations, so um, if, if that is incorrect, I apologise for that, but that's the language that is being used there. Um, First Nations people are actually accessing... Um, the Medicare-funded psychology sessions at a higher rate than the general population. Um, So the general population, 10% of people are accessing Medicare-funded psychology. Mm -hmm. First Nations people, it's 15%. Okay. And that's a great story. That that is a really good good news story. And, you know, huge, huge shout-out to Tracy Westerman and some of the other guys and girls who are doing some incredible work in that space, as Mm -hmm. well as any individual person who you know makes a decision to bulk bill first nations people or whatever whatever things we're doing um there's good work that's happening but it's really important to note it's falling um so that that one is there's a trend there that is not a trend in a in a good direction so we we do need to be really really mindful of that so that's that's the first area of inequity the second area um of inequity that we need to think about is geographic inequity. Yes. And this this is really hard because it's true. Like that there are not psychologists in Billawheela and um, far far northern Western Australia and central SA. Absolutely uh, not. That there is there is a legitimate problem on that front. Yeah, five G mobile reception, you know, a decent post office. Um that okay. Yeah, the, the, the truth is when, when you start getting to those towns of less than 5,000 people, it's it's difficult to get fresh fruit and veg. It's difficult to get mobile phone reception. It's difficult to get um, decent internet. It, although, again, well done to, you know, our, our mate Elon for the, the Starlink um, system that's that's just kind of rolled online. I think that's making a huge, huge difference on the, the technological um, inequity front. So, yeah, the, the, the geographic problem, it's real. It's as old as the Federation, if not older. Mm. We don't have a solution to it, but it's a whole of government problem. It's not a psychology problem. Okay. And has it been worse during COVID? Like, I'm not sure. I hear, hear people saying, oh, it's been worse in COVID because people are busier in the city, so they want to stay in the city. And then I've also heard, oh, well, I'm providing a service, a telehealth service now to, you know, there's no bricks and mortar services, per se, very few, but I'm now providing, say, a teleservice, you know, to you know, west of Broken Hill or, you know, Clare Valley or somewhere like that. Yeah, look, what, what I'm what I'm really hopeful of is that 
psychologists really stepped up during the pandemic in terms of their um their technology it's it's interesting um your your listeners or our listeners won't be able to to see this but you and i are chatting to each other on a video call yes lisa's looking fantastic like she's got a nice camera there and backlighting and i'm I'm, mine's looking horrific i'm just sitting on my laptop and in a in a dark room Um, but, but I think about, you know, all, all jokes aside, I think about like at the beginning of the pandemic, I remember doing that thing for the APS on like how to use, oh, yes. how to use cameras and, and yes. whatever. And I remember like, I, I used to look at video meetings of psychologists and honestly, some people looked like they were being held hostage somewhere <laughs> and being, being asked to send a message home to their family. Like it was <laughs> awful. Um, and, and how I just, changed, how we've yeah, changed, we've, uh, we've but, pivoted, have we've just moved you know at lightning speed because we just absolutely had to and we were very slow to take up technology and I think correct me if I'm wrong here the data around telehealth before COVID was for psychology was pretty low because we weren't very keen to do it you know we oh it's too hard and suddenly that was all we had that was all there yeah. is, you know, so we it, all managed to learn. It, it, it we? went bonkers. But, yeah. you know, again, if um, study three, which is in the thing, was a consumer study. So they spoke to 27,000 consumers and most of them said that they would still prefer face-to-face over telehealth. Yeah. But I, I do think where there might have been 100 psychologists who had decent telehealth capacity five years ago, yes. I think there's 30,000 of us now who we, we've got our Zoom subscription or our CoView subscription or our whatever subscription yeah. and we've got a decent camera and a microphone. Yes. And, and again, all, all jokes aside about Elon Musk, that Starlink service is providing incredible internet access to places that just didn't have it. And that's... And that's rolling out rapidly. That is amazing. I, I just want to go, pick up one point you've made there about people preferring that sort of bricks yeah. and mortar. It would be my experience because we run a country service and um, that's kind of new just before COVID and throughout. And, you know, we would find that clients would wait just to the psychologist who was travelling up to the region, you know, in a couple of weeks because I knew he was going up there. Then, you know, do the telly. They'll do it once they've met. But really, yep. would, where, there's, where it's on offer, that person and I are going to sit in the same room. Oh, I'll wait a few couple of weeks until he's there and have my appointment. And then, so, and if I can just also put in, in something else about my views about him, and I'm interested to know what you think the importance of the bricks and mortar. You're wherever possible. You know, you get that investment in the local community. You understand the local services. You know who the, you know that the butcher's having a bit of trouble with the family. Blah blah blah. You know, so you've got that investment. It makes it seems to me to be pretty important. I, my my hunch is that that it it is important. What is the, I don't know the data though. It's just my observation, yeah. right? And and again, I I don't I don't have data to speak to no. that. Um, the the counterpoint that I'd make, um, and and this is actually um, my my as as you know, my wife is also a psychologist. Hi, yeah. Rebecca, if you're listening. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Rebecca's mate. She does a lot of work with with couples, um, and she's been not surprised, but a bit overwhelmed by the number of people who prefer to do the telehealth appointment uh, for couples therapy. Um, and obviously there's limitations to doing that at a process level, um, yes. but, you know, she's been doing that for two years now and she's feeling a lot more comfortable with, with that. But just removing the drama of, you know, having to go and one person runs off and picks up the kids and takes them to the babysitter and then another person comes in and now there's two cars fighting for parking and, all, all of the drama. So a one-hour therapy session actually becomes a four-hour logistic operation for people, whereas actually just putting on a, you know, a movie 
retiring to the bedroom, turning on the laptop, and you know who knows if the if the session goes well, maybe they even have sex afterwards. Um, so there's benefits for both. Look, I think the, one of the, the, the key things here is is the flexibility of delivery. That's so important, and I would never want to lose, quite frankly, because that client who was coming whose car won't start. You know, yeah, or I've been sent home from school and oh, I've just broken my ankle and I can't get in, but I can do my appointment from my bed. Can we do that? Uh, I think it's just priceless and I would uh, I would never want to lose it. So anyway, that aside, something is there anything else to be said around the inequity issue? Because I'm keen to Yeah, look the the, look the finish on the, that or move towards that. No, the third one and, and this is a this is a real vulnerability for, for the program and I don't know what the solution is to this is because this has been created um, by a number of things. So the the next one is the economic inequity. Mm-hmm. Now, I really want to highlight um, economic inequity um, for, for a particular reason here. The numbers are not as bad as you would think. So if you have a look, and, and again, for those people who are reading along with the report, I'm looking at page 98 here. Uh, If you have a look at the top graph there on page 98, um, you'll see some quintiles. So quintiles are basically the Australian population divided into five chunks based on their levels of economic, um, in this case, it's household income. Mm -hmm. Now, if you see what used to be the case in 2018 was that the bottom quintile about five and a half, 5.4, 5.5% of people um, were able to access um, better access services. Mm-hmm. If you uh, have a look at the top quintile, it's sitting at six. Uh, and yes, it's, it's a direct relationship between wealth and level of access, mm-hmm. but the total okay. disparity is only between right. five and a half percent and six percent. It's, you know, that's not ideal. Medicare is meant to be universal. You're meant to be able to have equal access regardless of how much money you've got, um, but it's a small problem. Mm-hmm. When we look at 2021, the problem's gotten worse. Okay. Um, and what, what has happened is that now the lowest quintile is sitting at more like 5% as opposed to 5.3, 5.4, and the mm-hmm. upper quintile have moved from 6% to more like 6.8%. So now we're, talk- we're not talking about a gap of half a percent anymore. We're talking about a gap of 1.5%. And, okay. and it's trending in the wrong direction. Okay. Pe- people who are on the lowest level of income are decreasing their level of access to the service and people who are on the highest level of income are increasing their level of access to the service. And we, we all know the reasons for this. And the, reason, the reasons are that we spent 10 years being in a Medicare freeze. Um, okay. when, I, when I started... As a psychologist, um, we had a thirty-dollar gap. Um, we we no longer have a thirty-dollar gap because, I mean, I run a business, you run a yeah. business. My my rent didn't get frozen, my electricity didn't get frozen, my wages for my staff didn't get frozen, their superannuation didn't get frozen. Um, so so we couldn't we couldn't afford to run our business. We can't afford to run our businesses because uh, those prices haven't. They haven't stayed the same. Uh, absolutely. And and it looks like to to me at least it it looks like what's what's actually happened here is just that psychologists have been holding on for a long time by trying to and it, it's it's interesting. If you look at the data in the report here, 
it looks like the people on the lowest amount of income are the people who are most likely to receive bulk bill. They're the least likely to receive, um, co- sorry, to require co-payments, and they're the people who get the lowest co-payments. So psychologists have been doing what they can to try and create equity through distribution mm-hmm. of bulk billings, reduced mm-hmm. co-payments, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. But I, I just think when, when 2019 hit, uh, the, the economics of that for psychology practices was pretty devastating. Like, mm. do you remember we had a couple of months where we had mandatory bulk billing? So that pretty oh, yeah. much cle- that, that cleaned out any reserves that most uh, private practices yeah. had because we're all losing money hand over fist. Yes. Then, then we hit 2021 where we all have to buy 100 rapids every month um, yes. in order to keep our doors open. Like, oh. the, but the cost of running a business just got more expensive. Yes, I've blocked some of that stuff out, Aaron. Thanks for reminding me because I now feel sick again at the very memory of those uh, <laughs> those times and that uncertainty. Would there be a? Could we keep the doors open tomorrow, or would we just shut to shut them because there was not possible? And and if you if you have a look at the data um, in twenty eighteen, our bot the total bulk billing rates were forty six percent. They've now dropped to thirty four percent. So is as, there a narrative? As, yeah, there's a data. Again, showing. I, I, th- I think it's it's interesting. I don't think the data says that psychologists are greedy. I think what they have done is eaten into the fat that their businesses had in order to provide equity, and there's no fat left. Got it. I think that's that in front of me because I had them earlier on today. I actually went back and looked at the original um, report. Um, back from 2011, which was done by the same authors. And I'd never paid that much attention to the the bulk billing rates before. But it was really interesting. If you look at the bulk billing rates that that they reported, um, what you found is that the the gap increased and the bulk billing rate increased at the same time. So what what that to me says is that psychologists increased their fees Mm. in a Robin Hood kind of way. So they could take a little bit of money from people who could afford it so that they could subsidise more people who couldn't. And, and I think that okay. that to me is the kind of values-driven thing that I would expect a psychologist to do. Go, you know what, I can't run my business on bulk yeah. billing, but if the people who can afford it pay the, yeah. the extra 20 bucks... Um, then they will, somebody else yeah, will when, come. When, when I look at that data about the quintiles and the inequity, it absolutely matches with the falling bulk billing rates and the people who are in that, that bottom quintile so when we talk about the missing middle, it's not the missing middle of mental health. The missing middle is the people who don't have the money to afford psychological services. And they are not all adequately treated by Headspace because they're not all under the age of 25. It's a difficult any problem. Any some ideas around solving that? Is that for another podcast, Aaron? What do you think? Oh look, it's. It, I think that's a, that's a bigger topic, but there's yeah. there's a bunch of there's a bunch of really good solutions that are on the table. And interestingly, I think the authors um, pointed to to one of the most obvious ones, which is that they should be looking at tinkering with the Medicare safety net, mm. um, so that people who are in that bottom quintile, um, they hit the Medicare safety net earlier. Um, as you know, once you hit the Medicare safety net your sessions are subsidised, not at the standard rebate yeah, rate. They go up to like, is it 90%, 95%? It's some massive... It's ma- I think it's 90 but don't quite... Yeah, I, I, haven't, I haven't looked at it recently. But, but you've actually got to have spent, you know, several thousand dollars out of your own pocket to hit that safety net. So if you're in that bottom quintile, 
uh, and it's it's a choice between food, rent, or you know going off and you know getting that um, physiotherapy on your back that you need, or that psychological therapy or whatever. People are not hitting that safety net just because they can't afford to anymore. So I think that that's a really obvious solution that would actually solve or, or go some way to ameliorate the the safety net issues. And again, I go back to the point that the authors made the level of inequality in this system, in the better access system, is comparable to other government services. Mm. So th- this is a bigger problem than just mm. psychology. Psychology service, yeah. All right, I'm aware of our time and I want to get the I want to get this out to our listeners really properly. No, it so- uh, would be great. Um, but uh, any final comments that, that you want to make sure I'll listen before we uh, draw this to a close? The, the really big thing for me, and, and I'm going to assume that most of most of the people listening are, are psychologists, it's the thing that I said at the beginning. I, I'd really like people to separate out the report from the decision that was made. I think it's really unfortunate timing that a decision to slash services was coincided with a report um, that was actually one of the most comprehensive two thumbs up reports for for psychology uh, that we've ever seen. That there are some legitimate problems in that report that speak to inequity, and we as a profession and we encourage listeners. You know, over Christmas, I, I assume most people aren't going to read three hundred and thirty five pages of a report, but I'd really encourage people to read the executive summary. Um, everyone's been working really hard for the last three years, and I'd just like people to read it see that report, feel seen, feel heard, feel recognised mm. for the amazing work that they've done and really separate that out from what to me was a very unfortunately timed decision. Mm. Thank you. That's um, that's a great reflection, a great place to just about draw our discussion to a close. Before we do that, um, I wonder whether you might have any books or any programmes to draw uh, listeners attention to uh, that um, yeah, things that you're up to at the moment besides or reading 350 page reports and oh look that's that's great Lisa that the, the the two the two things that um, that we're doing at the moment so for for people who are out there in um, about to undertake registrar training uh, we're running what's called the prep program which is yes. the psychology registrar endorsement program which you can learn a little bit more about at prep.clinic. That's the team of senior psychs at Benchmark have pulled together your entire registrar program for you with supervision and group supervision and CPD to meet all of your requirements. And for anybody who needs to do their supervisor training, you can reach out to us at STAP, uh, which is stap.org.au. We'll put those links on the page, the Clinical Thinking Facebook page, so that anyone listening can can uh, get hold of them and uh, go and have a look. That's great, Lisa. Yeah, well, thanks very much for your time today. I really appreciate you making yourself available to clinically thinking at such short notice. It seemed really timely, this issue. We're really keen to get get out um, to listeners quick, smart. Um, Hopefully they'll have a chance to listen to it over the little next 10-day period and hopefully people are having – hopefully our listeners are having a break. Um, I I hope so too. Yeah. And, and I hope you are too. So thanks again. Thanks. Thanks, Lisa. And thanks for the invite. And I really look forward to reading the feedback and comments from the people who take the time to listen. So thank you all. Good on you. Thank you.
for listening and we hope you found the podcast helpful. I, for one, find it terrific to hear the hard data on the benefits of psychological services. And it's great to recognise how hard psychologists have been working over the last few years. We at Clinically Thinking hope you get to enjoy a rest, a well-deserved rest over Christmas and the new year. And we look forward to seeing you in 2023. Bye for now. Thank you.